Today's sermon is uh, based on Hebrews chapter 11. You can turn there with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides. We'll be reading verses 32 through the end of the chapter. And I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. The author of Hebrews starts off uh, this conclusion to chapter 11 saying, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me. He's been going through the heroes of the faith, these uh, giants, these exemplars of the Old Testament, who exhibited uh, great deeds as a result of their faith. And they've been set apart and held out to us because they exhibit an ability, a willingness to take their cues in life not from what the world is telling them, not even necessarily from their experience, but from God's promises and His character. When they find themselves in a difficult place where the road proverbially forks, they decide to follow the path that depends on God's promises and what God has disclosed rather than simply relying on their own wisdom or acting in their own judgment. And this is what the author of Hebrews has wanted to hold out to the audience to which he is writing. If you'll be reminded this morning, the audience of the book of Hebrews is suffering terrible persecution. Significantly, they're coming under uh, the thumb of oppressors for identifying with Jesus Christ. Many are, are in the process of leaving, others are contemplating leaving, and the author of Hebrews says, no, wait. Think about what you're doing. Think about the exemplars that come before Now think about how you're evaluating what's happening in your life and the options that are before you. It's this, that he he extols faith to them. In verse 1 he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And farther down in verse 6 he says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So faith is an assurance. It's a conviction of things that are not, are not necessarily seen, but it's absolutely necessary to actually please God, to be in good relationship with Him. Not only that, but part of faith is believing that God is going to reward your faithfulness. And then we, we together have been reading Hebrews 11, and perhaps you've been reading some of the stories on your own, and story after story, exemplar after exemplar, these amazing figures carrying out their faith in life, and 
I don't know about you, but it can feel a little bit belittling. Right? Are there not some points where you're reading through these stories and say, yep, they're pretty amazing, and I don't feel very amazing. My faith feels this big, and their faith is obviously that big. So what's really the point here, author of Hebrews? There are times that the chapter, depending on how you read it, feels a little bit like you're growing up in a home, and all you hear your parents saying are, is, you know, if you could be more like your big brother, or more like your big sister. Look at what they did. Why can't you handle the same kind of affliction for your faith? That's not a very life-giving message. Is there something more life-giving that's intended here? What really is the agenda of the author of Hebrews? That's what we're after this morning. And I think the author tips his hand to a degree. He's got in this passage we're considering this morning uh, three odd editorial comments. Whereas he's, he's listing all these great achievements or great acts of, of enduring suffering for faith, he enters in and makes a comment, and the comments are actually rather odd. They don't actually fit at first reading what's happening in the passage. And it's those that we want to consider this morning and see how they indicate to us how we might uh, find more life in Hebrews 11 rather than just a, uh, a list of accomplishments that we can never live up to. The first note is a note about strength. What is strength? All three editorial comments I'm going to approach by way of a question. So number one is what is strength? Uh, as the author begins here, he lists six more exemplars of faith, right? Big figures in the Old Testament. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. All standouts for one reason or another. Four of the six are said to have had the Spirit of God come upon them in a unique way as their stories unfold. And all the way until verse 35, so right in the middle of verse 35, you get an interesting shift. Until the first part of verse 35, everything that the author is speaking about is focusing on the strong, people who are powerful, people who have exhibited their faith through power. But in the middle of verse 35, the author shifts and then begins to talk about great suffering. People who have exhibited their faith not through being strong and powerful, but because they actually endured unspeakable conditions. So in this first part where we're focusing on the strong, the author is going along and you are getting this impression of, of strength and power. Right? Gosh, Samson. Right? He, that's a guy... That's an example of what does it have to be faith? That it had, you're, you're muscular, you're strong, you tear down walls and doors, right? Even putting aside for a minute all the foibles of Samson's life, right? Strength is this theme of this first part. But you get to verse 34, and the author writes that these figures, by which he means really the whole of the chapter, are made strong out of weakness. You say, wait, we haven't really been talking about weakness as we've been proceeding through the chapter. We've been talking about really strong acts, really bold and brave things that have been done. And the author says, realize, though, that these people have not been made strong out of strength. They've been made strong out of weakness. And that's a surprising comment. And it's not the way that we typically read chapter 11 of Hebrews. Right? You can actually get a toy set of chapters 11 of Hebrews in which all the figures of faith, save perhaps the women, are 
these ridiculously muscle-bound like uh, uh, professional wrestlers. Right? You can get Gideon and Samson and David, and it all looks like they spent most of their day at the gym. And this is a symbol of how we often, often understand what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Strength personified in these people. And it resonates with the stories that we tell ourselves. Right? Does it not? In sense of, what is strength? Well, strength is Rocky Four. Right? Your friend gets killed by a box. So what do you do? You go to Siberia, and you cut off all distractions, and you train as hard as you can, and you become as strong as you can, and then you defeat the oppressor. You have become strong out of your strength, not strong out of your weakness. And so we live, and so we teach our kids, you need to work hard, you need to become stronger. And those aren't necessarily improper messages, but do they wrestle with the notion that is identified here that strength comes out of weakness? What is the author of Hebrews after? I was reading the story of a Rwandan girl named Clementine. Clementine was six years old when the inferno erupted in Rwanda. And tribe rose against tribe, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. And she found herself one day waking up and her parents saying, you know, we're going to play a game today. We're going to play hide and seek. But we're going to play it different today. We're going to move from house to house and hide. And it will be really fun. And they began to hide from house to house. And eventually, one day they were hidden in the cellar and the parents said, today we're going to change the game a little bit. There, those woods, that field there, you need to run for it. And you need to keep running and not look back. Clementine and her older sister Claire would spend the next several years moving from refugee camp to refugee camp. Uh, from the Congo to other countries to South Africa, they will have existed, lived in seven different African countries before they finally reached the United States. Claire, the older sister, always taking care of Clementine. Clementine arrives, they end up in Chicago, is where they're located, and begin to go to school, and, and Clementine's a standout student. She eventually gets waitlisted at Yale, flies to Yale, walks into the admissions department's office and says, this is why you need to admit me. Yale says, we agree, we'll admit you. But she needs to do a year at Hotchkiss, which is a very elite preparatory school, uh, because her English isn't that good. Now, how do you, when you are chased out of your country in the midst of genocide, you have no idea whether your parents are living or dead, and you, you survive as two young females in concentration camps, what does that do to your psyche? What kind of veneer do you have to adopt? To, to engage with the world. The world which, you know, we talk about the world being a dangerous place. And compared to what Clementine grew up in, it, for most of us, it's just talk. And so Clementine looked to her older sister, Claire, who suffered all kinds of things in order to protect her and said, she is strong, she is what strength is. I will be like my older sister, Claire. And that's how she approached uh, life. Is trying to be like Claire. That worked for a certain period of time. Remember, she's looking at a model of what she perceives to be strength. She says, I'll be strong like that person. And this is how uh, she phrased it. For When she finally went off, left where she was being raised, left her sister who was also in Chicago and spent her year at Hotchkiss. At Hotchkiss, uh, Claire's attitude, her older sister's attitude, and this is the younger sister writing, 
along with my refugee skills, served me well? Whose behavior do I model to achieve in this place? Who has real power and who is bluffing? Where are the dangers and how do I escape? My ability to hack the system got me there into those long halls filled with portraits of pale, square-jawed men. But it couldn't protect me from my inner life. I was also alone for the first time, away from Claire and the Thomases, the family that housed her. I was 20 and felt so old and so young. One day in a philosophy seminar, I sat around a table with my fellow students, the boys in sports jackets, the girls in sweaters. It was a beautiful, crisp fall day. Okay? So up to this point, Clementine has adopted this posture of, I will be strong, strong, I will evaluate any system, I will understand what I need to do in order to survive, and I will do that. I will outplay everybody in this game. And finally, as she's sitting in this seminar, it was a, a beautiful day. Um, the professor gave us a thought experiment. You're a ferry captain with two passengers. Your boat is sinking. One passenger is old and one is young. Who do you save? With this, my veneer of decorum started to crack. Before I arrived on campus, I asked the headmaster not to share my history. Nobody knew who I was. Do you want to know what that's really like? I blurted out, this is an abstract question to you. Everybody stared. That's the beginning of Clementine starting to fall apart. That This veneer of strength that she adopted, she realized, doesn't come close to actually addressing the turmoil inside of her. It's a strength that's pretend. It's a strength that's been manifested to help her survive, but it isn't something that answers the big questions of her life and what she has experienced. Clementine is a picture of all of us. A picture of the, the, the veneer of strength that we adopt in order to tell ourselves that we can not only survive but thrive in this world, that we will not be weak, but we will be strong, and we conquer this world through strength. And all of that does not actually give us strength. Eventually, that veneer, just like it does for Clementine, will crack. Strength, according to the author of Hebrews, for all of these characters doesn't come through being strong. It comes through understanding weakness. Last night I laid in bed and I thought, my goodness, the sermon is not right. I'm out of practice. It's been four weeks, right? It's a muscle to preach and it's atrophied. I thought, we are going to waste our time tomorrow. I, I do not have, I'm not ready to feed God's people. You hear the arrogance in that, right? I am not ready to free, feed God's people, right? I don't have anything to feed you with, right? If I'm doing my job well, I am giving you Jesus, and I am doing my job well and giving you Jesus well when I am working not out of my strength, which doesn't mean that I'm not faithful to my task, but when I'm weak, right? If I perceive myself to be strong, then I think I have something to offer you and I get in the way of Jesus actually being given to you. But when I understand that I am weak and depend wholly on his strength, then you get more of him, and that's better for everybody. Why does Abraham... right? You have to be called out of his homeland. Why does Jacob have to work 14 years for a corrupt uncle? Why does Joseph have to spend three years in prison? Why does Moses have to spend 40 years in Midian? Over and over again, all of the heroes of faith have to go through a process in which they identify with their weakness before God can make them strong. 
strength is born out of that weakness, not out of their strength. And to read Hebrews 11 any other way is going to put you in a bad spot, trying to produce or manufacture a strength that you're incapable of doing, when instead the author is calling the people to recognize, yes, you are weak in the midst of your suffering, but that's okay. God will make your weakness strength. It's a completely different way to evaluate what is happening. The second question that arises in the midst of these editorial comments comes in this later portion after the the shift in verse 35. Remember, we said everything up to the beginning of verse 35 is about strength. Everything after the, the middle of verse 35 is about weakness. It's about suffering terrible things for the sake of identifying with God. Some are tortured. Some are killed. Some run around as refugees. Right, All kinds of examples of difficult circumstances as a result of faith. And then in the midst of this, the author again makes a comment in verse 34 that is surprising. I'm sorry, it's not 34. It's verse 38, and the author says, regarding these individuals who are suffering, of whom the world was not worthy. Really? See, from a worldly perspective, they're getting the snot kicked out of them. They're not worthy in any capacity. They are living terrible lives. No one would want to trade places with them. No one would ascribe worth to the condition that they endure. And yet the author enters in and says, they are those of whom the world was not worthy by virtue of the faith that they exhibit. What does that mean? What does it mean to aspire to be someone of whom the world was not worthy? Again, what we're talking about today as the author kind of winds up chapter 11 is that these individuals took their cues from God's character and God's promises rather than from their environment. Dr. Tom is a 51-year-old missionary, a medical missionary in the far south of Sudan in uh, the Nobu Mountains which is a place that is bombed almost on a daily basis by the Sudanese government for a rebellion that originated there. There are about half a million people living there, and he is the only physician for all half a million. He works without electricity. He practices Civil War-era medicine, uh, because that's the only kind of medicine that can be practiced in that environment. He makes $350 a month. He has no... uh, He left his girlfriend... When he went to the field, she wasn't very interested in going to Africa. Right? He has no prospects of relationship and uh, no retirement plan. Right? So from the world's perspective, you look at this guy and say, yeah, a little crazy. Right? Not very smart, not very strong, not very well planned out. And yet here he is working amongst these people as a result of his faith, trying to be salt and light amongst them. And what is remarkable about his um, his work is, again, you would think that, that someone would look at him and say, goodness, you're not worthy of much at all. If you were really worth something, you would go and have an esteemed medical career in the United States. And you do your customary little missions trip every other year, right? But you'd make a good living and have a good retirement and have a family. What's worthy about this life that you're living? I'll tell you what's worthy. 
The journalist who was writing the story on Dr. Tom went to talk to the Muslim chieftain. It's a, it's a Muslim area. And asked him, you know, tell me about Dr. Tom. And the Muslim chieftain goes, uh, Dr. Tom is Jesus. And the journalist says, pardon? And the Muslim chieftain said, every day, Dr. Tom helps the blind to see. He helps the lame to walk. He helps the deaf to hear. He's Jesus. And what could you say of a life that would signify greater worthiness than that? That this people feel like they actually have access to understanding who Jesus is through the life of Dr. Tom. It's a remarkable example where, again, Dr. Tom, like the heroes of chapter 11, is not taking his cues on how do I define worth? Right, we're all asking the question all the time, how do I establish my self-worth? How do I justify my existence? How do I know that I'm important? And Dr. Tom doesn't take his cues from the world or from the American dream. He takes his cues from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because he's taken his cues from there and identified with him, he thus becomes Jesus to these people as a pointer to the one who actually can offer them life. It's a beautiful picture Again, reorienting us about what really is our calling. And what really it means to orient ourselves to God's character and God's values. So as we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the author uh, summarizes it this way. Now, you have to keep in your mind to understand what's going on here, that the community is suffering and this has all been an exhortation to help them to remain faithful. The author doesn't want them to walk away. They're suffering. They're saying, this isn't worth it. We're tired of waiting for God's promises. The author of Hebrews says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's the author saying? Number one, you're tired of waiting for your promises? So were they. They were never realized in their lifetime, and yet they remained faithful to the promises of God in the direction that he had called them to, despite not having received the promises. They waited because they believed that God was going to do something better in the future. And do you realize what happened as a result of their waiting? You were included. This is what the author is saying. He's saying that apart from you, they should not be made perfect. God has waited to a certain point in history to reveal Jesus. And because He's waited to the day in which you happen to be alive, you get to be included. And if He hadn't waited, if He had set Jesus, say, in the time of Malachi, you would not have been included. Everything would have been wrapped up. So before you decide to give up waiting, perhaps you want to think a little bit more deeply about what might be accomplished through waiting on God's purposes. Because the same exact thing could be said to us. Do we realize all of the promises of God in this life? No. But do we believe that God is not only working to our good, but is going to do things that are grander and better than we can possibly imagine in the future? If so, then we orient the decisions in our life to His character and His promises rather than to our own whims and desires. And who do you think of chapter 11 of Hebrews would stand before you today and say, 
yeah, I regret my decision. I'm really sorry that I waited on God. They would be bowled over to see what God had actually done in the arrival of the Messiah, which no one anticipated. No one got it right. No one said, Jesus, finally He's here. We've been waiting. You fulfill all the prophecies. Everyone had to rethink what had come before in light of the arrival of Jesus. What makes you think we won't have to rethink what will happen in the future in the light of what God actually does in history? What that will be, I don't pretend to know at all. But why would I think it would be less than what God has done in the Incarnation? And if it's not going to be less than what God has done in the Incarnation, then my goodness, what, what else would you put your hope in? What joy and what beauty and what exciting prospect. Because if you're not going to wait on God, you're going to wait on something else. It'll be either be yourself or something in this world which you know, as soon as I say those words out loud, you know they will disappoint. Wait on God. The one who does not spare His Son. The one who, who calls you to faith and gives you Hebrews chapter 11, not as a way to beat you down, but to say, hey, remember, you grow up in a world that teaches you to think a certain way, but that's not the right way. Start by understanding what strength really is. Start by understanding what it means to be worthy. And then look forward, because God is making you perfect along with the audience of Hebrews in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise You for Your sacrifice. We thank You that You are our chief exemplar of faith. But we thank You too that You have called and enabled these heroes of old to demonstrate in their lives what it means to exhibit faith. And so we ask You, come Holy Spirit and strengthen us and give us wisdom. Teach us that strength comes out of weakness and that we need not be afraid of weakness. Teach us that we do not want to be worthy in the eyes of the world, but we want to be worthy in Your eyes. And as a result, if we are deemed un as a result, we look forward to be being unworthy of the world. And make us strong that we are not overly affected by when the world says we're unworthy, we're fragile, and sometimes that hurts. And we pray instead we would seek our worth from You. We thank You that that worth is communicated in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so as we come to the table, as weakness is... is uh, is manifest before us as strength, as our worth is established by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus, we ask that You would nourish us in our faith. We ask it humbly in Christ's name. Amen.